Well, let's open our Bibles again to Matthew, and in Matthew's Gospel, we are moving to chapter 14, so look with me there, Matthew chapter 14. This is a narrative that is classically known as the beheading of John the Baptist narrative, but really this is less about John the Baptist, or as the original language, the John the Baptizer. It's less about him and more about who killed him, and that's Herod Antipas. And so we're learning about why Herod Antipas did that, and we're learning about the conscience that he was left with because he did that. And where I want to apply it to your life, as we all are given a conscience, I want to ask the question, why the guilty conscience? Why the guilty conscience? And why is it that people have a guilty conscience? A conscience is something that we're all given and we are born with a conscience. Those on earth are made in the image of God, have a conscience. And a conscience is neutral. It's something that is not just given to a Christian. It's not something that you are born again to have. You are born with a conscience, born with a moral sense of right and wrong because there is a creator and we are morally obligated to him as the created. So you have a conscience. And we're, as Christians, graced with the opportunity to inform that conscience with the gospel. But without the gospel, all there is left for a conscience is guilt. And that's what we're looking at. This is a laboratory look at the inside of Herod's heart, who was left with a guilty conscience. So why the guilty conscience? And why does our world have a guilty conscience? And what does the world need to do about it? That's what we're learning about this morning. In the immediate context, we've learned from the end of chapter 13, the close of chapter 13 was a study on the parable ministry of Christ. He's teaching the parables. He's giving those polarizing messages that people are choosing whether or not to go towards Jesus, but most are fleeing from Jesus, being judged by Jesus's teaching. They are fleeing it. They don't want that accountability. Jesus then chooses, as we learned last week, to go home and go to Nazareth as a local um, young man. He was uh, you know, raised in elementary, middle school, and high school there. Uh, everybody knew him by name and sort of knew him in the neighborhood. And then he goes into the synagogue and is teaching the word of God, bringing the word of God as Messiah. And people there unexpectedly are polarizing away from him. They don't want to hear it. They're saying, who does this guy think he does? The carpenter's son. He for them was too familiar. We know familiarity breeds contempt, but this was it on steroids. They were they were exercising contempt against Jesus. They did not want him. They were polarizing from him just as the people in Galilee were. And now we see another version of polarization down in chapter 14 where Herod hears of the ministry of Jesus, hears of his miraculous um, miracles and his teaching, and he wants nothing to do with Jesus himself because as we're going to learn, Jesus... And his reputation was haunting the conscience of Herod Antipas for what he had done. Just look with me, just to stick our our toe into the pool here. Look at verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, 
This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle powers are at work in him. Again, Herod Antipas knew that this wasn't John the Baptist in the sense that Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist. But the haunting conscience caused Herod to say, this man that's shown up, this man that's doing miracles, this man that's preaching a message that I don't want to hear is John the Baptist resurrected. The ghost of Christmas past has come to bring the heat onto what I have done. And he's 2.0 because he's John the Baptist with miracle power now. So he was haunted. Rejecting Jesus is a dangerous thing to do. It's very dangerous for Antipas. It's dangerous for anyone to do who has a guilty conscience, which is everyone who's outside of Christ. Whether you reject him for being too familiar with Christ, oh, he's too human. He's just like everybody else. He's just a prophet. He's just a good man. He's just a moral example. That's very dangerous to do. That's what the hometown locals did to Jesus. Or he's too divine. He's, he's, he's bringing too much heat with this divine gospel, with this holy message, with these miracle validations. I don't want anything to do with that because that word of God is exposing me for who I really am. So I'm rejecting him. He's too human. Ah, you know, he's, I'm blase on Jesus or, whoa, he's too holy. Ah, he's, he's making me feel uncomfortable. Both responses of polarization and rejection are what you want nothing to do with. Jesus is fully God and fully man, fully human and fully divine. Why? Because fully human so that he could sympathize, empathize, and love you where you are, meet you right where you are in your sin, and holy enough to be the perfect substitutionary eternal sacrifice for your sin. Two natures, one person, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect savior for you. You want to reject none of him. You want to receive all of him, all of who he is. And this is exposing two very dangerous paths that people are taking in view of Jesus being present. We're looking now, though, at Herod's response that's coming through his guilt. I do you want to say, if you want to look at a closer study of the conscience, look at Romans 2, 11 through 16. Read the book, The Vanishing Conscience by John MacArthur. It's one of my favorite books that he ever wrote. It's kind of a just one that people don't always um, know about. The Vanishing Conscience is a great book. Verse 12 of Romans 2, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Whether a Jew that's raised under the law, you're going to be judged, or you're a Gentile, and you never heard any Bible ever before in your life, you're still going to be judged by the law. Why? If you skip down verse 15, it says, They, these are the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness that their conflicting thoughts accuse and or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret men's men, secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here, just to be um, sort of simple and summary about it, is to say that if you've not had a close accountability under the teaching of God's word, it still does not exempt you from being judged by God for your sin. And the reason for that is you are God's creation and he has a witness inside of you. That's why people who never went to church, who you'll run into no 
the difference between right and wrong, and they know when they're lying, cheating, stealing, committing adultery, being immoral. They're riddled with guilt in their conscience. And Herod Antipas is a classic example of someone who's reacting to hearing John the Baptist preach about him, and he's going, you know what? I am riddled in guilt even though I'm not a full classic Jew. This is a story of flashbacks. If we'll look at Matthew 14, uh, there are four flashbacks that Herod is having. Um, Jesus has awakened these flashbacks. His notoriety, his fame, his miracle ministry, his presence that's approaching him uh, is coming to bear on his life, and he's remembering what he did. That's why people who have buried sin in their life, they, they try to stay away from the things of God or the word of God as much as they can because their conscience is alarming to them. The outside voice of the word of God is creating an echo chamber of guilt inside of the heart. And that's what Antipas is going through. This is um, laid out as a classic literary story might be. There's happy times, there's a problem, the problem worsens, and the characters are unable to prevent the problem. And then there's a catastrophic grave ending. It's a literary masterpiece in the composite of 12 Verses And it's a study on how to deal with guilt and how someone here is what not to do. Someone who's failing to deal with their conscience with Christ. John's circumstances are sad. He's going to be killed in this story as we'll read it. But Herod's are sadder. Herod's situation is worse than John the baptizer because he's unsuccessful to quiet his own conscience, using the wrong means and methods to do that. These are wrong means and methods to try to deal with a guilty conscience, and they come by way of flashbacks. J.I. Packer, the great late theologian, said Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, to kill our consciences. Let's avoid that. Let's avoid that temptation. Let's keep our conscience awake. Let's keep our consciences alert to scripture and inform our consciences with the guilt of our sin and what to really do about it with the grace of the gospel, okay? Is that fair? Are you with me? That's what we're doing here. All right, here's Herod's four flashbacks that are answering why the guilt. Why the guilt? What's going on? Look at verses one through four. We've read verses one and two. Pick up with me at verse three in this first point. Herod seized and bound John. That's his first flashback. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Let's stop there. Who is Herod? You have to understand Herod's position, prominence, and power to understand the level of guilt of his sin, how far he had stooped um, in wielding the power that he wrongfully wielded to get rid of what he thought was his problem. He's really attacking John, thinking he's attacking his conscience, in other words. He's attacking the wrong thing. He's dealing with some sort of pragmatic cover-up rather than dealing with his own heart. Here, the Tetrarch is riddled with guilt. He's heard of the miracle ministry and he's fleeing this. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. 
So who is Herod? Well, he's one of the four tetrarchs. He's one of the four leaders in the Galilean and Judean um, geography. In your Bible map, you know, where you have Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee, you have that subdivided or, or quad divided, I should say, into four different regions with four different Herods. These are the tetrarchs. They're the ones who um, have um, the duty share of a particular area as proxy for Rome. They are Rome influence in the, um, the Judean area, all along Transjordan, the Jordan uh, River. You would have these areas and this particular area that Herod Antipas um, was over is the area of Galilee. It's the Galilean region. That's how we know he was there. His dad, or as Pastor Pete Johnson would say, his daddy, his dad uh, was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was put in a position over all of the four regions, and it was, it was divided into those quadrants at his death. But Herod the Great was a terrible, terrifying leader. He was the one who snuffed out the babies up to two years old um, when the Magi came in and said, the Messiah is coming to this region, the region of Bethlehem and Nazareth. And, and he, um, he had the order given for children and babies to be slaughtered. So terrible was he that when Jesus was born, and then located in, in uh, well, out of, out of Bethlehem, he was born. Um, he, they relocated to Egypt because of the threat of that Herod the Great. And so they're there and they're fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea to come back that out of Egypt shall come the Messiah. And that one came and then Jesus was kind of planted into Nazareth and grown and raised. There is a boy after Herod died. But at that point, Antipas was placed in power. And so this is Antipas. This is the one who is, who is um, there out of the line of um, the Moabites. Uh, it would have been Esau's line that Herod the Great came. And then um, thus you have Antipas out of that. So he's not a Jew by blood. Um, Jews hated these Herods. They hated their Tetrarch system. Herod had 10 wives. So he had, um, Herod the Great had 10 wives. So he had several Herods. Um, you have... Antipas, who's here in verse three, really reveals his heart. What is the power of what Herod can do? Well, he seized John the Baptist. John the baptizer seized him and bound him. This is his first flashback. He seizes and bound. What did I do that's making me so sad? Well, I put him in jail. Why? Because he was trying to cover up what he had done, the sin that he was being called out for doing. It was a soap opera-like sin that began upon Antipas praying in lust for his niece. As we see in the text, it was Philip's wife, verse 3. Matthew is clear here saying that this little girl um, or this woman that, that um, Philip married was one that Antipas took, seized, and stole for himself. It was Philip's um, wife, who also, in just to kind of add the intrigue and the grotesque nature to this, um, history has it that Herodias, Philip's wife, was Philip's niece. And so Philip was also Herodias's uncle. And it gets uh, confusing and all of that, but um, Aristobulus is Herod the Great's half-brother, and Aristobulus had um, um, Herodias as a daughter. And so Philip, um, in the family... Um, married her and married his own niece. But Antipas, in like manner, met one day Herodias um, at Philip's region, and he stole and took his niece, uncle to uncle, and married 
um, Herodias to himself. And so there's incest here. It's compounded with um, this adultery. And um, it is really um, all bets are off for John the Baptist to say, I need to open this up as a public rebuke against this kind of sin. I mean, you can see it. It's all in the family. It's all under the, under the cover-up and scandal of politics, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Well, guess what? The law is one thing. The law of the land of the government system is one thing, but the piercing effect of the Word of God answers what is wrong in culture and in society. The Word of God will be um, standing. And I got to say this. Really, when John the Baptist was incarcerated and Herod Antipas takes John the Baptist for preaching against him and preaching against his sin and he sticks him in jail, sticks him in the dungeon, it's a picture of trying to snuff out the word of God. It's a picture of trying to bind the word of God. But the word of God cannot be bound. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be stifled. Um, The gates of hell will not prevail against the growth of the church that comes through the truth that's marching on. They couldn't shut... Um, Jesus down. They couldn't shut the early church down. The word of God just continues to spread and flourish. What was John the Baptist preaching? Well, Leviticus eighteen sixteen: you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 20, 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So this is the sermon of John the baptizer that got him put in jail. John's got him off the streets. He's trying to shut up the word of God and he's failing at doing so. It would have been a desert fortress, um, a building that pictured strength. Surely Antipas would be able to shut this down, turn the spigot off and put him in this dungeon. It was Transjordan um, out in the desert area is a high ridge along the Dead Sea. It was a dungeon uh, that was part of a superstructure. So on the outside, um, sort of above ground, you have these thick walled, um, this thick walled castle fortress that Antipas lived in. All of his people lived in there. It was had 160 cubit high towers that flanked this magnificent palace. And then underneath is the dungeon below. And so you have Herod above, in the lap of luxury, and you have John the baptizer down below. That picture of above and below is very distinct. You have Herod who lived in power, self-promotion. He was passive aggressive, filled with pride, full of adultery, full of lust, anything he wants at his whim, fully worldly, totally sensual. You have John the Baptist, the last prophet, down below in the dungeon, forerunner of Christ, strong, confrontational, set apart under the Nazarite vow, camel's fur, eating locusts and honey, never tasting fermented drink, no razor ever touching his hair, a desert recluse, an aesthetic, voice crying out the wilderness, humble, Christ-exalting, self-demoting. Couldn't be a more clear contrast between the two men. One was truly free, though he was locked in jail, and one was incarcerated by his own grip of guilt inside his soul. Think about that. Can't stop the piercing sting. So I'm going to lock up the mouthpiece to see if I can do that. I'm going to try to imprison scripture, try to discredit the witness, all to no avail. That's the first flashback. Second flashback is Herod succumbed to popular opinion. 
What do I mean by that? Well, look at, look at the verse here, verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. He feared the people. John the baptizer is saying it's not lawful for you to have her. And he wants to do something about it. And so he puts John in jail, but he, he wants to kill him, but he doesn't want to kill him. You say, but Matthew says he wanted to kill him. He wanted to put him to death. Well, Mark adds uh, some color to all of what's going on here. This is, uh, this is Herod Antipas playing politics with his own thinking. He's like, well, you know, I know the people don't like me already because I'm a tetrarch and I represent Rome and authority over top their Jewish laws and all their ways. I know that's what's going on, but... Um, but I really want to, you know, keep in good favor with them. I mean, they can't do anything to me, but I want to keep in good favor. And, and so I'm not going to kill John, even though I want to do it. That's kind of the mind games that he's playing with himself. He's, uh, he's annoyed by this and he's overcome with irrational fear where he's trying to justify keeping John alive, even though he wants to kill him. He's trying to work it through, even though Antipas, he's really under no real threat a revolt. It's the conscience that's his problem. Turn over to Mark 6, verse 20. This fills in kind of the perspective that Herod was going undergoing. This is the parallel uh, reading of this flashback. It says, for Herod feared John. So he feared John. He feared the people, Matthew says, but he also feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. Where did he keep him safe? Think about this. In jail. Well, I'll, I'll put him there. You know, I, I fear the people. I, I want popular opinion politically here. Um, I'm also kind of afraid of John because he's righteous and holy. He's this last prophet guy. So I want to keep him safe, um, almost like, you know, my little pet prophet down there in jail. And then um, it says, when he heard him, Mark six twenty, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Talk about an identity crisis. I'm putting you in jail. I want to kill you because you're calling me out. And at the same time, I'm kind of perplexed because, you know, that sermon series I don't like, but I like this one and this one and this one. I mean, that thing's exposing my sin. I don't like that. But on the other hand, I like your preaching. You know, it's kind of compelling. It's kind of fascinating. It's interesting. And I'm actually, it makes me happy inside. I hear him gladly. So he respected John in one sense, his integrity, but he couldn't quiet his guilt. And he was picking and choosing and what he would listen to. John was preaching, probably in jail. We know from Matthew 11, um, verse 2 and following, John's disciples came and told him reports about Jesus. So he was probably preaching to them, probably had a prison ministry, a jail ministry going on from the dungeon um, there in the desert. Herod respected John's directness, probably. There's a historian named Thomas Kidd um, who uh, was a professor and a histor- American history professor, I think from Baylor, and he was talking about Benjamin Franklin and, and his religious background. You know religious, um, you know Ben Franklin as the inventor and all these great things, but and a founding father of our country. But he was also known um, by his own hand as a Christian deist. He believed that God was too distant to be near to the heart. And he was the great clockmaker in the sky that, you know, set everything into motion, but then backed away from his creation. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He believed in Jesus as a secular humanist and not as a worshiper of Christ. So he was raised in puritanical thought. 
He was raised by Christian parents. He was raised in a Congregationalist church in Boston. Um, So he had some ties to Christianity, but kept it at a superficial level. He kept in steady contact with his sister, Jane Meekin, and uh, of Boston, who was an evangelical Christian, his closest sibling. He was friends with George Whitfield, um, who was the evangelist of the Great Awakening, the great open-air preacher of the 18th century. The preacher grilled him. Whitfield grilled, this is a quote from Kidd, grilled him, meaning Ben Franklin, occasionally about the state of his soul. Yet Franklin admired Whitfield and even fleetingly proposed that they start a colony together in the Ohio Territory to model the best principles of Christianity. That's what Christ was to Ben, was that these are good principles. These are good things to follow. Jesus is a good man. Jesus is um, great to know and, and even be associated with. However, if you get too near and dear to Jesus, he'll begin to expose you for who you really are if you haven't really given your life fully to him. And that's Franklin's problem. Franklin would listen to Whitfield in open-air preaching in Philadelphia where crowds of thousands would gather, maybe even up to twenty or 30,000 people, like a giant stadium event. And, Whit- and Whitfield would preach, and Ben Franklin would be questioned, do you like what you hear when he's preaching? Do you believe it? And uh, Franklin would just, you know, in, in a coy manner, say, well, I don't believe it, but I know Whitfield does. That's a terrible place to be. It's where a lot of our culture is. Herod feared John. He feared him for his integrity. He feared the people for his political popularity. But you know who he was most afraid of was probably Herodias, his wife, his illegitimate wife. Mark six nineteen says Herodias, she had a grudge against him against John the baptizer and wanted to put him to death. So she wanted him to die, but she could not because Herod feared John. And that leads us to the verse we just read. So it's this round and round and round and who's afraid of whom and what are we going to do? And really, this is the irrational behavior of a riddled conscience that's riddled with guilt and the fear of not knowing what to do with that guilt. By killing John, by imprisoning John, by shutting John down, you're doing nothing to help your conscience out whatsoever. And people, by and large, will make all kinds of pragmatic, empty decisions to try to deal with the conscience rather than dealing directly with Jesus. Can I get an amen? Isn't that what people do? That's the wrong thing to do. It's guilt making someone indecisive. It's John's fear controlling him using the prophet and the prophet's integrity as a cover scheme for doing the wrong thing. Well, this pathology of heart is played out in the rest of the story. Let's look at uh, measure number three. The first flashback is uh, incarcerating um, or or imprisoning John. And the second um, measure is uh, John uh, basically rationalizing his fear. And then thirdly, Herod... Um, sorrowed over his commitment he had made. So he seized and burned John. Herod succumbed to popular opinion and he sorrowed over the commitment he had made. He's sorrowing. Things are going from bad to worse here in verse six. But this is the scene that sets the stage for this digression. This is sort of the turning point for you literary people, um, which I'm married to one, but this is a big time turning point in the story. But when Herod's birthday came, The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry 
Here it is. This is the flashback. He was sorry because, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. This is the worst moment of Herod's life where he's sorrowing over the setup for where he finds himself to be. Well, let's just back up and set the stage for the party. Who was there? The participants were three different groups. First, the Herodians, which are um, those who are political supporters of this tetrarch. Um, and then secondly, you have Jewish dignitaries um, who are there to set the stage for the, as the religious leaders. So you have the Herodians who are political supporters. They're not true Jews, but they are in full political support of Herod Antipas and all that's going on. Then you have Jewish dignitaries, the religious leaders, who are probably like, uh, you know, kind of grinding their teeth to be there, um, but they need to represent the Jews to, to Rome. And then the Chiliarchs, which are the commanders of a thousand. Chiliarch means a thousand, so it's commanders of a thousand. This is the military brass. So you have the military, you have the religious group, and then you have the political supporters, and they're all there, and they're all having a blast together, right? They're just having a great time. It's probably awkward on steroids, super awkward, and we're going to just all celebrate Antipas at his um, party, but they're really there for their own um, power-broking for Rome. And this is really a representation of of Herod's ego. It's ego. It's a small little kingdom. These are the dignitaries of his kingdom. And he's filled with guilt um, filled with awkward. He's under the conviction of the, of the word of God and he's trying to suppress it. And so it's setting the stage where he's drunk with power and he's riddled with guilt. It's when you're going to make the worst possible decision that you could possibly make that he's going to regret for the rest of his life. This is the setup of what undealt with guilt does to a person and to their life. It sets the stage to do the wrong thing. And that's what he's doing here. This is what... This is why Herod is so upset that Jesus has come because everything is flooding back for what he did in this moment. They call out the daughter, Herodias' daughter. She's a teenager. Her name was known to be Salome, and she was probably Philip's daughter and uh, Herodias' daughter. And, And adopted into this situation, Antipas says, dance for us. And it's probably a salacious, terrible, awful dance that noble women would not participate in whatsoever. It's inappropriate, and so Herod, who's presumably drunk, you know what he does to give himself comfort in this moment um, with all the guilt that's compounding is he quotes scripture. That's what he does. That's what a good Christian person will do. They're riddled with guilt. They're not dealing with it with the gospel. They're drunk with power. They're drunk with ego, perhaps inebriated, and so let's quote the Bible to try to save the situation. It says, uh, again, Verse 7, so that he, prompt, he, he promised with an oath. I mean, Herodias, um, the daughter of Herodias danced. It pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, you say, where is the quote of Scripture? Well, Mark 6, 23 is the direct um, quote of Scripture that he said. This is the oath he made. Mark six twenty three, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Where did he get that idea? Well, that's from the story of Esther in Esther 5.3, where Ahasuerus, the Persian king, is in charge. Esther had won the beauty pageant and was um, under you know, captivity at that point and was, was brought in, but 
um, the the sort of conspiracy that was that was um, going on behind the scenes for Haman to dethrone Ahasuerus and take the power. Uh, he needed what he needed to do was to destroy the Jews and the Jewish population, and so. Um, and so Esther's uncle was um, the person who blew that conspiracy wide open. And so Esther began to call her people, the Jews, to pray for three days. And she had a banquet served to King Ahasuerus and approached. And if the king lowered the scepter, as you know this, then she was given favor and she was able to have an entree with the king. And Esther 5.3, the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request it shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. That's a holy moment. That was the sparing of the Jews. It's a picture of the gospel. It's the picture of the grace of God. And then you have Anubis, drunk with power, sitting in a situation with a holy man down in the dungeon. And he says, I'll give you whatever you want to the teenage girl. Now he's, he's caused this little girl to stumble. Think about that. He is sinning on on ultimate um, levels, you know, with the ultimate um, sin against um, one of God's um, creation. And, and he quotes scripture. And the mom, Herodias, seizes on this opportunity. Herodias knew that if she didn't trap Herod, he wouldn't follow through. He was too passive. He was too wishy-washy. He was, he was caught up in his own mind games. I can't kill John. I want to kill John. The people won't like me. Oh, I can't do it. You know, and, and back and forth. He's too religious. I like his preaching. And round and round he goes. And so Herodias just wanted to stick the dagger in, take the power, and kill the prophet. Let's deal with this pragmatically. It's said that ultimately Herodias later on would persuade her husband to go to Rome to request the royal crown for himself under Caligula. And ultimately, all of that scandal was um, outed and he was exiled to Lyons, which is modern-day France in Gaul. And um, all of his fortune was given away to Herodias' brother Agrippa. So all these things are from this power play dynamic within their sin-made kind of false marriage Herodias, like Antipas, she assumed that killing John would stop the voice, stop the guilt. John could have been just saying, hey, just like any good businessman, I'm just the messenger. Just giving the word of God. But what happens when you give the word of God? People will try to kill the messenger. Are you up for this task? Anything less than this would be uninspiring. Why would you give your life to Christ if it wasn't going to confront the world for sin? Why, wouldn't you, why would you believe that you were saved from anything if people who still live in sin aren't offended by what saved you? The authenticity of the gospel comes from the fact that people are offended by the message if they don't receive it and they want to snuff out the messenger because it is, it is the gospel that unearths the sin. It, it upturns the soil and exposes what's really there. It's why all through the Old Testament, you see the killing off of the prophets. Jezebel, do you remember her? She was married to wicked King Ahab. And you have Elijah, who's the prophet of God. And Obadiah is sent out there. And Obadiah is like a double agent who's sparing the prophets from Jezebel's wrath. First Kings 18, 13. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water? 
And you remember Isaiah, he was known in church history as being sawn in two. Uh, Hebrews 11 speaks of the prophets who were killed and of whom the world was not worthy. Saul, um, King Saul, the first one, tried to kill David by a spear. Stephen martyred. Paul executed by beheading. John, the gospel writer, exiled to death ultimately. This is what people do. Verse 9 shows and reveals the horrible state of Antipas's heart says the king was sorry. He was sorrowing. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a crocodile is said to shed tears. I looked it up on Google. I think that they do. Over those it snaps in two. Crocodile shed, uh, sheds tears over those it snaps in two. He may have felt, this is speaking of Antipas, Antipas may have felt a dying struggle of conscience for reverence for John, yet the grief could not have been very deep for he'd already willed to kill John. The king feared that his courtiers and comrades at the drinking bout would think him weak and jeer at him for being too religious to touch a prophet. Listen, if you ever make an oath or a promise and you find out that it's a sinful oath and it was wrong to make it in the first place, don't play mind games with yourself and say, I've got to follow through with that sin because it's never right to follow through with sin. Remake the oath, redo the commitment, turn it to Christ, come out with your sin, recognize it publicly to the degree that you publicly sinned, make it right with the person that you sinned against, deal with it, don't bury it, don't cover it. Don't delude yourself into thinking, well, oh, I got to follow through with dealing with it in the way that I've promised to deal with it. If it's wrong, don't do it. Don't do it. Number four, here's the fourth flashback. First flashback, seized and bound John. Second, I succumbed to public popular opinion. Thirdly, I sorrowed over the commitment that I made. And then fourthly, Herod went through with it and sacrificed John because of the hardness of his heart. Verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it. They went and told Jesus. Verse 10, why the guilt? Well, Herod's passivity. Herod's passivity. In his passive nature, He aggressively beheaded John. And then you have the next verse, this eerie exchange of John's head as a guilt trophy. Think about it. You have have the haunting of John's head being given to the teenage girl, probably known as Salome. Salome takes the head and she gives it to her mom. Remember the promise that was made to Salome in that drunken party is up to half the kingdom. You can have up to half the kingdom, anything you want. And she runs to her mother. What does she want more than anything else up to half of the kingdom? Mom's approval. Mom's approval. Talk about brokenness, adultery, incest, corruption. All of that leads to this kind of brokenness in a teenager's heart where all she wants to do is get her mom's approval. Mom, what do you want? I'll I'll ask for anything you want. Already seized on it, said, give me John the Baptist head. And she does in this empty exchange, this pragmatic false measure to try to deal with guilt, to try to deal with undealt with sin through a trophy head given to 
a mom for approval. This is just like the 30 pieces of silver that Judas Iscariot won for betraying the Lord Jesus. Judas was in the friend circle. He was a friend of Christ on a superficial level and then became murderous and satanic against Christ and for blood money. Matthew 27, 3 through 6, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, giving back, saying, I have sinned or by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is this to us? See to it yourself. They don't want it. We don't want it. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. The guilt of Judas's sin meant his own demise. I can't live with this fire that's inside of me. This panging guilt, this echo chamber of the voice of the word of God, my heart, it has to be dealt with one way or the other. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. It's just like this trophy head is a symbol of guilt. What do we do with this? Look back at verse two. I read it at the top of the hour, verse two. And this is, this is Herod Antipas. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Whoa, he's after me. He's hunting me. He's haunting me. John the Baptist is back. What do I do with this? What did he do? Well, in contrast to having John beheaded, look at verse 12, what the disciples did. The disciples came and took the body. They didn't flee Christ. They weren't polarized from Christ. They wanted Christ's messenger. Just like think of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who took the body of Jesus down and and wrapped it. And then the women who came around the tomb to wrap and and finish the burial process of, of the martyred son of God. They wanted to associate with God. They wanted to associate with Jesus, just like the disciples wanted to associate with, with John the baptizer who had been martyred and sacrificed for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, that they were wanting clear association And that contrasting this teenager and her mother dealing with the guilt of John's head and what that represented. These disciples who were believers, they had they had their sin already dealt with. And so they had no shame. They had no fear of associating with John, um, the baptizer and um, honoring his life commending his sacrificial death and and telling that to the Lord Jesus. They held that as a holy happening together. So let's fast forward the tape. This isn't the last account of Herod Antipas. I want you just to see where this went with Herod Antipas. What did he do with his guilt? Fast forward a few months, Christ is standing trial before Pilate. He's been delivered over to the Roman government for the mock trials, for the back and forth of finding guilt in Jesus. You have Pilate who's saying, I find nothing wrong with this man. Um, he's delivering them over to the crowds. He's, he's trying to deal with his own guilt because he's playing a passive game with the crowds, trying to get them to say, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Because Pilate is struck with his own fear over what he's doing with the most innocent being there could be on earth, the Lord Jesus. And he's washing his hands of his own guilt. And he couldn't wash off the sin that was plaguing his own conscience as he delivered the Lord over. In this mock trial that he is sent over, though, the Lord is to Herod Antipas. And you pick up on this in Luke 23, verse 8. Look in your Bibles there. This is the same Herod. This is Herod Antipas. 
Fast forwarding a few months later, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him. Whoa, that's a different frame of mind because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, wait, Herod Anubis a few months earlier is going, this guy's haunting me. He's hunting me. I don't want this miracle worker. And now something's happened in Antipas's heart. Took off the head of John the Baptist. Your conscience goes one of two ways. It either goes to Christ or it gets worse and worse and worse into a hardened state. And that's where we find Herod Antipas, not Christ, but going to death Verse 9, so he questioned him at some length, and he, he, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by him vehemently accusing him, accusing the Lord. Listen to verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. How bad did it get for Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas? He went from sorrowing over an oath that he had made to behead John because he knew that John didn't deserve it to now he's, he was afraid of the Lord Jesus and he's hardened up to a state where now he's going to move from fearing Jesus to scoffing at Jesus. If you want to add to the outline point of what Herod is doing with the guilt of his sin, a guilty conscience, he's um, seized John, he succumbed to popular opinion, he sorrowed over the commitment he made, and he sacrificed John, and now he scoffs at the Lord. He's face to face with the one person who can save him from the guilt of his sin. This is huge irony. Matthew's tying this all together. Literally the one being in the universe that could save him in an instant from the guilt of his sin, eradicate all the adultery, eradicate all of the affair, eradicate all of the incest, eradicate all of the abuse of his teenage daughter, eradicate, take it all away, take away all the guilt of his sin in a moment if Herod Antipas would just see who he's really talking to. And instead, he's ultimately polarized against him at the ultimate level where he's saying, I will laugh at you. I will mock at you. I will laugh at you, you being the savior. And the scoffing moves to a final point where his conscience is ultimately and utterly seared. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. So he thought it's morbid confirmation. He saw Jesus as a, like a a trickster for sideshow effects. Someone Antipas could mock rather than dread. So, let me finish. Herod's sin did require blood, but it wasn't John's blood. It was Jesus' blood. For you, if you live in a seized, succumbed, or sorrowing conscience of unrelenting guilt, then go to the cross It was only moments later, hours later, that Jesus, after he met with Herod Antipas at that moment, that he absorbed the full penalty of guilt for every sin of everyone who would ever believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus absorbed the full penalty of guilt so that you, if you need Christ, can make the greatest exchange that you would ever need to make in life and that would last for all of eternity. You have to go to Christ and take to him the guilt of your sin and receive the gift of saving grace.